Yo, Ethan here. Welcome to another episode of Tech as a Lifestyle, the podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Vigi, a tech creator on YouTube. Here, we talk about everything from tech to YouTube to content creation and everything else in between. So here's today's episode. Enjoy. All right. On today's agenda, we have all things Windows 11, busting some PC myths, the future of the PC industry and how 2020 was crucial for it. So, Windows 11. Where do we start? All right, let's first talk about the changes and then move over to my thoughts. So we see everything on the desktop get moved front and center. The taskbar, the start menu, everything just slides right on over to the center, which isn't bad, it's fine. Although I would have preferred not having the taskbar go all the way to the edges, but then it would just be a straight macOS ripoff and that's not cool play. Speaking of macOS inspiration actually, it became quite evident that macOS Big Sur actually played a big role in their UI choices. Opacity and transparency tweaks to indicate hierarchy, rounded corners, multitasking experiences, docking, etc. All of these were clearly macOS inspired. Windows has always excelled with multitasking features and split screens and all of that other stuff. What I'm most excited about is that snap to grid feature and how the multi-display experience has really elevated. But like how Windows remembers what apps were in split view and how even after the display disconnects, nothing is lost, all of your snap to grid features are still there as is, solid. So Microsoft said that in terms of performance, Windows 11 would be a lot more efficient, which is great, but I don't know if I trust that statement a lot. Because when they launched Windows 10, it was supposed to be able to run on a potato. That is what they advertised it like. It was the lightest OS till date. But that was really far from reality. Windows 10, with its consistent update checks to its general system resource consumption, was pathetic in terms of OS performance. But there has to be significant changes under the hood and they did say that background windows updates were 44% smaller in size and much more efficient. So that's great. Then we've got the windows and Amazon collaboration. Sort of. To bring Android apps to windows natively, again sort of, with several caveats. So first things first, this is an overlap of the Amazon app store and the Microsoft store to allow Android apps to run natively on windows. The caveat is that they aren't integrating the Amazon App Store into the Microsoft Store. Oh no, they are bridging it using Intel's bridge technology. Another caveat is that you will need to download the Amazon App Store onto your PC and then have an Amazon account that you will need to log into and only after which you'll be able to download Android apps onto your PC and run them quote unquote natively. And that actually segues perfectly into what my final thoughts are on Windows 11 or any desktop OS release for that matter, whether it be Linux or Mac OS. See, I don't have a lot of requirements or demands from an operating system. And the reality is that not a lot of people do either. The most I expect from an OS is that it should look good, have great performance, boot up super quick, have compatibility with a wide range of apps, and really anything that helps me to jump into apps and the web faster and more efficiently. I spend most of my time, if not all, either file managing, which admittedly does depend on the OS. Anyway, if not file management, I'm in some app, either editing or browsing the web on Chrome 
or like making a mock-up in Blender or taking a meeting, etc., etc. So as you can see, what I need done is mostly handled through apps and not through the OS. And all the operating system does in this case is ensure that these apps run at their best and also enables me to get up and running as fast as possible. And yeah, that's really the main reason why being heavily critical of a desktop OS is not really a very sensible thing. But when it comes to mobile OSs, however, that is a different story. And Microsoft did provide us beta previews through the Windows 8 Insider program, but I'm not gonna go through and install it. And here's why. My entire workflow and everything I do relies on reliability. And this Windows preview is a beta and no beta is a 100% stable and that's no good for me. I spoke to quite a few people who are already using it and they said that it's mostly stable, but one developer friend in particular said that he did notice a few recurring issues that are beyond the scope of this podcast. Anyway, even if this release is perfectly fine and reliable, eventually when updates to the beta do roll out, there's always the risk of the reliability to go straight out the window. It's a very real possibility and Microsoft cannot test to the scale of implementation no matter how hard they try. And that's fine because really no company can do it either. So that's me and my take on Windows 11. What do you think personally? Okay, let's play Mythbusters next. May I not to say that without being copyright strike though? Probably not. Demonetized. <laughs> Anyways, I always see comments on YouTube saying that, oh, that power supply is so overkill, it's unnecessary. See, there are a few things to consider when buying a PSU. Number one, your total power draw. How much does your GPU and CPU consume at peak load? In a real situation, you obviously wouldn't have your CPU and GPU at 100% just because your CPU wouldn't be able to handle the GPU if it's doing other stuff. Because remember, they're not completely independent components. They depend on each other. And the CPU has to create an optimal environment for the GPU and the GPU has to ensure that it is letting the CPU function and do its thing without bogging it down, which in more common terms is known as a bottleneck. Anyway, ideally you add up both and buy a PSU that's slightly more than both to allow for overhead, for overclocking and or upgradability. And also the fact that it will age over time and lose its efficiency. Second, you must also understand that your usual power draw must be within the 50 to 60% curve of the power supply's max output. Because most power supplies, at least ones with the 80 plus rating, are most efficient in that 50 to 60% window. That's why you see so many PC builds with the 1000 watt PSUs, even though their usual to high power draw lies in the 750 to 850 watt range. Another thing that drives me absolutely crazy is when people say, oh, why are you giving those components 6,800 watts or however many watts in this case? You're gonna burn the parts. Well, no, that's not how basic current draw works. Please don't do that. Please don't say that. The components are only going to draw how much they need. Remember, the PSU isn't pushing power, the components are pulling power. And the components aren't gonna pull all the power available to them. It's gonna draw how much it needs for that specific task. It's smart enough now. So the power supply can only provide as much power as the components draw. So no, nothing's gonna burn. Let's talk about the biggest one in as long as the PC Master Race has existed, thermal paste. 
Despite so many people saying this over and over again, no one seems to understand that a cooked grain of rice sized drop in the center of the IHS, that metal piece on your CPU, that acts as an interface for heat exchange, integrated heat spreader is what it's called, or for larger CPUs like Threadrippers or server processors, a big X in the center of the IHS is more than adequate. The thing about saturation with thermal paste is that it, you have quite a bit of a buffer zone and you really shouldn't mess up unless you're the words, of course. Oversaturating the IHS just adds more layers that the heat has to go through, so your transfer efficiency takes a bit of a hit. Undersaturating it results in air gaps that mean that you have hotspots in the dye as there is little to no thermal transfer at that spot. I think why people misunderstand how much thermal paste is necessary is because they don't know why you use it in the first place. The real purpose of thermal paste is to fill those microscopic air gaps between the copper coal plate on the cooler and the IHS of your CPU that's the source of the heat. Because there will be these microscopic gaps that worsen the thermal transfer, not necessarily by a lot, but significant enough to cause few degrees here and there. Then people believe that NVIDIA invented ray tracing. No, not it didn't. Let's first understand what is ray tracing. According to NVIDIA themselves, it is a calculation of the color of pixels by tracing the path that light would take if it were to travel from the eye of the viewer through the virtual 3D scene. So essentially, ray tracing is math, not anything fancy. NVIDIA did not invent math, so they kind of didn't invent ray tracing at all. In fact, a gentleman by the name Albrecht, 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 Albrecht Dürer, who lived way back in the 1500s, invented ray tracing. So ray tracing has been around for over 500 years, and ray tracing is nothing but calculations to estimate how light reflects, distorts, gets blocked, passes through on various three objects on different materials. But NVIDIA did pioneer real-time ray tracing, or better known as RTX, which essentially is these calculations being done in real time, which is very, very difficult, and which is exactly why RTX only this year is even remotely something people would consider. The last 10 years of PCs have been mega interesting. It's had its red-hot moments, like essentially ever since AMD entered back in 2017, and dollar moments like the year 2015. This market keeps growing and it has seen explosive growth in 2020. So I think that it's appropriate to talk about the future of PCs because I don't think this craze is gonna end anytime soon. At least I, I hope it doesn't. I wanna address I wanna address an interesting trend that we've been seeing in the PC market with how demand for lower end chipsets in motherboards is higher. For example, there are way more FB550 boards out there than X570 ones. Really, there isn't a whole lot of advantages to going higher end other than overclocking, maybe bandwidth for more PCI Express devices. AMD, in my opinion, really pioneered this move with the insane amount of backwards compatibility that they managed to incorporate in their system of essentially since Zen launched, right? I honestly think we will continue to see this happen Remember, when AMD comes around to launching Zen 4 with a 5 nanometer process, mind blown, we will lose compatibility with AM4 sockets because it's obvious there will always be limitations to how much they can still build upon their existing platforms because things like DDR5 and PCIe 5.0, 
requires some seriously different hardware because both look to significantly increase bandwidth while consuming significantly less power. It's indefinitely known that both Intel and AMD are set to change platforms with their next-gen processors. The reason I say that lower-end chipsets are more in demand is if I open up Amazon right now and search for AM4-compatible motherboards, one of the first results is an A320 chipset motherboard, the lowest-end, bare-bones motherboard chipset you can find. And with AMD even allowing this chipset to overclock the CPUs makes it even more sensible to buy, but realistically nobody wants to overclock on a motherboard with subpar power delivery because a brownout could completely brick your CPU. But the fact that this is an option and that people do buy it speaks volumes as to the trends of the PC market. While we're talking about power, we should talk about why efficiency is such a big part of a company's marketing now. I solely and solely credit Apple for it. They've been constantly talking and implementing remarkable performance for what in their products. This has led to the rest of the industry scrambling to improve on this because apart from a marketing spec push, this actually means big news because all of their chips can now be placed from everywhere from nooks to passively cool small form factor PCs and more places where there isn't a lot of cooling headroom and that's a dub for these companies. Then we've also had rumors that Intel's Alder Lake CPUs and AMD's Zen 5 CPUs will use a different design that are both targeted to significantly improving efficiency. They're gonna be taking a page out of ARM-based chips and having some high efficiency cores and some high performance cores that switch on the basis of the workload. This allows not only for a significantly more efficient processor, but also thermal efficiency, which can make laptops thinner and lighter but also, in terms of desktops, this could mean really, really good news as there may no longer be a need for a beefy cooling solution and folks could actually save a buck or two without giving up close to no performance. Because remember, a significant chunk of the design money of a laptop also goes into all the copper heat pipes and the heat sinks and the vapor chambers and perhaps more than you probably think. This could also present an interesting case for HDT processors, or like the next-gen Threadripper and Intel's offerings. If they use this hybrid core design, it could potentially slash the cost significantly and also help create a significantly more efficient platform for high-core count processors. Another implication of such a hybrid design is that eventually servers could get a lot quieter, and really, that would be sick. Then, we have Intel entering the graphics card market with their first product being their XEHPG card, which as of right now seems to be primarily aimed at laptops because of reported incredible efficiency. See, AMD tried to disrupt the GPU industry, but let's face it guys, Nvidia has been in the business way longer and things like ray tracing and creative application implementations are just better because of how much NVIDIA collaborated with companies like Blackmagic Design, Adobe CC, SolidWorks, Fusion 360, etc. early on. And in turn, these companies implemented CUDA into their applications and AMD just can't redo that anytime soon. But they have come a long way from what early Vega used to be and they've reached quite close in raw graphics and raster performance, so that's great. See, if Intel is able to provide some strong competition, NVIDIA gets pressured again to innovate, give a better value to customers, and that's gonna be a good thing for us at the end of the day. 
then let's also hope that it might be a light in the dark tunnel of GPU shortages. Gamers might finally be able to get a GPU into their hands. Really, any competition in any market pushes for innovation and suddenly makes it so much more exciting. What could be even more exciting, arguably, is what AMD has done with their new mobile CPU and GPU release. So, first they launched a bunch of desktop APUs for their Ryzen 5 and Ryzen 7 SKU, which was so important for them to integrate that they had Linus yelling at them. Then we saw some bold mobile GPUs that are decently competitive with NVIDIA's best. We haven't had an AMD-based mobile solution that was decent in so long that seeing them at this stage is just ridiculous. We aren't gonna spend a ton of time talking about it because things like denser and more efficient 3D chiplet architectures are just things a lot of us, myself included, just expected to happen eventually and is beyond the scope of this podcast. And now, in this portion of this episode, we have to talk about what 2020 did to the PC industry. Things it exposed, things it changed, and things it didn't even bother touching. One very obvious thing being, the PC industry is actually much more massive than we think. This phenomenal growth that we saw over the past six to seven years was not really understood by us because we couldn't scale it. Because, come on, we never had an opportunity to. But come 2020, and we truly saw its magnitude. Not just us as consumers, but even manufacturers were stunned with how much demand we saw with everything from PSUs to GPUs to CPUs and really everything else in between. And no, we're not including mining demand here, actual genuine PC demands that we collected from both Steam's surveys as well as Microsoft and Zoom's surveys. Now, why is this important? See, 2020 had the PCMR grow faster than it ever has, and it actually brings to light a need for change as to how manufacturers approach products in three ways. First, they need to consider its scaling in terms of them having a larger pool to feed, and also if it's feasible to manufacture at that scale. Which segues into my next point, and that is revisions into how these components are manufactured to ensure the lowest possible energy consumption on the assembly lines and the maximum quantity of components in boxes. And finally, their approach to launches. They will have to make their events shorter, easier to understand, and more importantly, have more of that sugar sugar coating. Then AMD as a company again proved to everyone that they aren't going anywhere and that Intel and Nvidia better look out. So Lisa Su absolutely killed it as CEO and she spearheaded one of the most exciting runs in tech that we've ever seen. And I believe that this is just a trailer. The film is still to be seen. Where AMD really came up this time around was arguably with their graphics. Although not just entirely blowing past NVIDIA, they're trading blows. And I would argue that this is where AMD really saw Rise, because everyone knew when Ryzen was launched in 2017 that AMD would get real good. But people really doubted the Radeon side. And for good reason, like, Vega was just like, facepalm city. But what AMD has got today is a culmination of both AMD's engineers' brilliance and Lisa Su's incredible leadership. Intel, watch out. Basically, everything you launch is going to get bulldozed for the next few years. But deep down, I really want Intel to pick themselves up again, because that again increases the competition, and which in turn benefits us again, and leads to tons and tons of technological breakthroughs. And it's really embarrassing to see Intel constantly make such marketing face bombs, 
and continue to attack Apple instead of focusing their money and their brain cells into actually creating a better product that would improve their standing in the market and probably regain some of that market share that they lost to AMD.